In the book of uh, Matthew, in, in chapter 24, as Jesus is approaching the last days of his life here on earth, certainly the last days of his ministry, he brings up the topic of end times. And he says in the midst of, of his teaching, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel that he comes to share, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We're going to begin a study of the book of Acts this morning, and the title that I've given for the study, the entire study, is that the world may hear. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we study through the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We studied the gospel of Luke beginning all the way back in 2017. We studied it for most of the year last year. This morning as we begin the study of the book of Acts, we want to first note that it was written by Luke. In fact, most scholars are, are confident, as am I, that Luke Acts is uh, two volumes of a single story written by Luke. Luke begins in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verse 1, that many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us, it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke was not one of the original disciples of Jesus Christ, but he had interviewed them. He had compiled an orderly sequence of the events of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, so that Theophilus and everyone else that read Luke's account would be reminded of the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at how Luke begins Acts in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering on the cross, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke writes to the same individual, Theophilus, one we know very little about. Some have speculated that the name is one intended to encompass all of those that were disciples of Jesus, followers of God. Theophilus means lover of God. But Theophilus was a very common Greek name at the time and may simply been the name of an individual that Luke was writing to, a protege, someone that he was sharing the gospel with, one he was a mentor to, or perhaps it was a patron. Maybe it was the publisher of his works, the one that was going to see to their copying and the, and the spread, the, the distribution of the things that he wrote. Some speculate he may have been a member of the the royal household, when you look at your translation, some will say most excellent Theophilus, most honorable Theophilus. So some draw conclusions from that, but we can't be certain. What we can be certain of is that the introduction of the two volumes, both addressed to Theophilus, one covering Jesus' birth to his, to his death, burial, and resurrection, the other 
covering the time from his resurrection through the spread of the gospel to Rome's capital city, written sequentially, as they are, in the same style, in the same manner that Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul, is the author of both books. Some would say that, that Luke is the, is the probable author of both books. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Luke's the author of both books. So, You might be interested to know that the volumes of Luke and Acts make up a third of the New Testament. When asked who, who wrote most of the material of the New Testament, people often default to the Apostle Paul because he wrote so many of the books, the letters, the epistles that he wrote. But in actuality, Luke and Acts comprise in volume a third of the entire New Testament. What Luke gives us in these two volumes is what he referred to as a well-investigated, orderly account of everything that happened from the birth of Jesus to his death, burial, and resurrection to the widespread of the gospel such that his readers could be certain about what they believe. In Luke's gospel, he documents the life and ministry of Jesus in his second volume, Acts, he documents the spread of the gospel throughout the empire of Rome. So for that good news about Jesus to spread, I want you to see some things right off the bat. I mean, Luke jumps right into it. For the good news of Jesus to spread, there was needed disciples. There was needed, this was critical, ones that were followers committed to their fellowship of Jesus Christ, ones who believed Jesus, disciples who were convinced beyond any doubt that Jesus was God's son. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says there, after his suffering, after his crucifixion, after his death and his burial, his resurrection, he showed himself to these men and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus confirmed the authenticity of every miracle that he ever performed, of every teaching in which he ever engaged. He, he confirmed those things by his bodily resurrection from the grave. And then after that resurrection, for 40 days, he was appearing, teaching his disciples. In John chapter 20 and verse 19, it says, on the evening of the first day of the week, the very next week after Jesus is risen from the dead, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, they were concerned for their own safety that the Jews would come and seize them and turn them over to the civil authorities for execution. For fear of the Jews with the doors locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands and in his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Thomas was not among them on this occasion. He was one that had some doubts, not having seen these things with his own eyes. So one week later, Jesus appeared to them again and said, Thomas, see my hands, touch my hands, put your fingers in the nail holes, see my, see my side. And, and Thomas became a believer in the resurrection as well. In John 21, 1, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, this is that occasion upon which he 
that they had that great miraculous catch of fish and he cooked breakfast for them. This was the occasion on which he gave Peter the opportunity to profess three times his love for Jesus Christ, just as he had denied Jesus three times shortly before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, this is what the apostle Paul wrote. I pass on to you what was most important and what was also passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said, that he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, many of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, later by all the apostles, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. These disciples had seen Jesus alive, and they were convinced beyond doubt that Jesus had defeated death, hell, and the grave. He could accomplish the same just for them because he had promised so. When you go back in the book of John in chapter 11, you read of Jesus' encounter with the family of Lazarus in the aftermath of his friend's death. Lazarus' sister laments Jesus' delay in coming when he sees her. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She knows Jesus is his healed, and so her expression is, is, if you had been here, you could have healed him, you know. You could have come sooner. She's not chastising him, but there's, there's lamentation. I, I wish you had come sooner. If you had come sooner, my, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus responded in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, seemingly with some disappointment, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on, on the last day. But here Jesus' next words, because these words are critical if we are to be disciples like those first century disciples who believe so completely in Jesus, so completely that it forever changed the course of their lives. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is the question that reverberates through history from the moment that Jesus spoke it down to us today, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I spoke with a uh, Jehovah's Witness about six weeks ago. They'd been coming by the house and Seems my wife has struck up a relationship with one that likes coming by and spending time with her. I told her, why don't you ever schedule these people by when I'm here? I was there one day when she came by. and She came inside, and Debbie was busy with the kids. And 
it just seems to be a, a, a little bit of, you know, like sometimes they can't read social cues. You know, Debbie's got two little children. We'd just gotten home from the hospital with Marley and trying to get settled down, let the dust settle. There they are standing in the door. They want to have a theological discussion. So I, I listened to the back and forth a little bit. And after about five minutes, I, I stepped out in the room and I said, let me share with you what I believe. And so I proceeded to share from A to Z the gospel of Jesus Christ and shared my testimony and how God had so radically changed my life and done for me things that I could never do myself, that it was God that opened my eyes and God that brought the change. And, and it was God from A to Z. You know, it was the Holy Spirit of God moving that had brought me that I talked about the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and his shed blood and its requirement. And I mean, I just covered everything there was to cover. And I'd stop every now and then. I'd go, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes sense. They agreed with virtually everything I said. But then when I got through, I'm very serious. After about 30, 35 minutes, the woman says, you know, what would really be good is if we could schedule a time when we could come by and study with you the things that are in the magazines that we leave with you. And I, I kind of shook my head, and I said, you know, it seems to me that you think there's something lacking in my understanding of, of Jesus. I just shared with you for 30 minutes what I believe about Jesus, but you want to study with me more. Apparently, there's something you want to reveal to me that you think I don't understand about Jesus. What, what is it? What am I missing? And she said, well, if we could just schedule some time to study. And I said, no, you, you know what it is. There's something. Tell me. Just tell me. Well, no, it would be better if we could study. I said, I'll tell you what, we'll schedule some time to study, and we'll study from the Bible instead of studying from your magazine. And I'll study. I'll put together a Bible study, and you can come over and study with me and my wife, and we'll study together. I don't have any problem with that. And she said, well, study's got to be organized. And I went, I've been preaching for 30 years. I, I teach. I've been studying. I so are you implying I don't know how to organize a Bible study that I won't be organized? Or the Bible's not organized. What are we saying here? No, 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 no. I didn't mean to offend. And my point is that finally she got to the point, she said, do you know what the name of God is? This is where we, after all of this, do you know the name of God? I said, yeah, I know the name of God. It's the name that he gave to Moses at the burning bush when he's sending Moses back to Egypt and Moses trying to figure a way out, and he says, well, who will I tell him sent me? And God said, I am who I am. I am because I am. Tell him I am sent you. I said, it's, it's Yahweh is the way some people pronounce it. I said, it's actually it's four consonants. They didn't have any vowels back in ancient Hebrew. And I said, so we, we throw some vowels in. I said, you guys throw in three of them call it Jehovah. Some people throw in two and call him Yahweh. I said, but the bottom line is nobody's there and nobody knows exactly how God pronounced his name. We don't even know how the ancient Hebrews pronounced the name. I said, so yeah, I know what the name is. I also know that the Hebrews thought the name was so holy that they wouldn't even speak the name, you know, but she was convinced that unless I used the name Jehovah, I couldn't call on the name of the Lord and therefore I couldn't be saved. And that was the whole in my gospel. And she was ready to argue that literally to the grave with me. And I, I may be oversimplifying 
Jehovah's Witnesses. There are a number of other points at which our theologies don't agree. In fact, we don't believe that their theology is the orthodox as we look to Scripture regarding it. But my point is, is she was prepared to argue that to the grave. There are people convinced of things that they will argue to the grave. Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez will argue to the grave that we need universal health care and we need free college tuition for everybody. And it doesn't matter how much it costs. They will argue that to the grave. Al Gore will argue to the grave that in 20 years, all of us that live in Florida are going to be underwater, you know, and he will argue it to the grave. Alex Jones believes 9-11 was an inside job that the government blew the Twin Towers up. He will argue it to the grave. I read that Kyrie Irving, a basketball player that I enjoy watching, believes the earth is flat. I don't know if he's willing to argue that to the grave or not. There are a lot of people that believe there were multiple shooters involved in JFK's assassination. They'll argue those things to the grave. The first disciples were convinced of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. They were convinced that Jesus had power over death, hell, and the grave, and they clung to that belief all the way to the grave. Many of them, perhaps most of them, martyred for the thing that they believe in. What do you believe so strongly that you will defend your position all the way to the grave? Because for the gospel to be spread, for others to know true disciples of Jesus Christ are what's needed, ones so convinced that they will stand their ground in advocating for Jesus Christ, fully convinced that he has the power of life, eternal life, Believing, ones who believe in him, knowing that they'll live because of that belief, knowing that if death takes this mortal body, that they still will live on an eternal, unafraid of any earthly death that might come their way, knowing that Christ has the true power of life. What the gospel needs, and one of the very first things that, that Luke points out in Acts is that the apostles the, the disciples, those first disciples of Jesus were individuals that believed Jesus Christ. Yeah, guys, I, I hate to say it, but you don't have to look any farther than social media pages to see we get wrapped around the action with all kinds of things. We get sucked into all kinds of discussions about things that other people believe and we disagree with them about. But what I'm suggesting to you this morning is, is there's one thing that we ought to have a laser-like focus on and it's our belief in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's going to change a life. The only thing that's going to change a life. The first disciples believed Jesus. The first disciples obeyed Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized in water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Over the course of the 40 days that Jesus spent meeting with the, the disciples, apparently there were some that were coming and going from Jerusalem. They were probably coming and going to local towns and villages, Bethany and Bethphage, which are towns that are one, two, three, four, five miles away. Walk it in an afternoon, an hour or less in some cases. Perhaps some of them were returning to as far away as, as Galilee, going back 
to Capernaum. You could travel to Capernaum in roughly a week if you made good time. Maybe there were some that were thinking about going back to Galilee because his first disciples were men of Galilee. But Jesus was getting ready to do something special, a special work, a revealing of himself in his power by the release of his spirit. Jesus wanted his disciples together when this took place. He gave specific instructions, do not leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus instructed the first disciples, responded. And because they, they stayed, they were participants in And they were witnesses to that mighty miracle that we're going to study in just a couple of weeks as we look at Acts chapter 2 and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost when the church received the, the empowering that was required in order to spread the gospel across the empire. Jesus' command for the disciples to wait in Jerusalem was critical to the accomplishment of the work that was to be done. He wanted them together when this took place. They were about 100. In Acts, it says they were approximately 120. I don't know if all 120 of them stayed. There may, there may have been some that even after Jesus gave this command, one or two of them said, man, I, I got to get home. There's something I got to attend to. I've got to get back to my family. There's work that's got to be done. I, I don't know. Maybe not all of them stayed. We know the, the corpus of them, the greatest number of them did, but imagine being one of the ones that said, I, I, can't, I can't stay to miss out on, on what Jesus was, was getting ready to do. Jesus wanted them together. They needed each other, and the event that was about to happen was, was one that was going to encourage them in a way that literally this, this event of Pentecost that we're going to see shortly is, is one, I believe, that propelled the gospel throughout the empire. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, the writer of Hebrews says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of of Jesus, and he makes reference to the the tabernacle that was first built. There was a a holy of holies that was separated by way of a curtain. He says, "We, we have confidence to enter into the to the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. We've had a sacrifice made that allows us, like the, like the great high priest, the only one that was allowed to go in, he said, we have that same privilege as the great high priest. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ himself, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. These are individuals being described here that believe in Jesus. They have complete confidence in Jesus. Then in verse 24, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, that, that last day, that day when Jesus breaks through the cloud with the archangels and the sound of the trumpet. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that greatest commandment that he gave us was to love, to love each other, 
to love those outside the body of Christ, and not just to love the ones that we like, but to love even the unlovable among us, even the unlovable outside the walls of the church. The writer of Hebrews calls us to give ourselves to meeting together. For it is in this gathering together that we can encourage one another. We can spur one another on to that love and the good deeds that are associated with it. In our gathering, we see the Holy Spirit at work among us in ways that are missed if we travel alone. Jesus wanted his disciples, his very first disciples, to establish this habit. He wanted them together when he sent the Holy Spirit among them, that they would see how that worked and what that looked like. I've said this to you so many times that the Holy Spirit of, of God within us is the guarantee of our salvation. It is the seal of our salvation. That's the way that Paul describes it in the first chapter of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit within us is how we know that we're saved, that we belong to God through Jesus Christ in, in good and in bad. I mean, if you're, if you're doing things that God has called you to do, you know you're within his will. It's the Holy Spirit within you that's doing those things because those are things that run counter to who you are in the flesh. You would never do them. But the Holy Spirit of God will do them. And when you're not doing that, that you know that God has called you to, when you're walking in rebellion with God, against God. It's the Holy Spirit within you that's saying, hey, when are you going to let me do what I want to do? How long are you going to continue to do what you want to do? You know it's surrender that God's called you to. It's that conviction of the Holy Spirit. So whether you're walking with God and in, in realizing the Holy Spirit is at work accomplishing things I could never accomplish, or whether you're walking in rebellion against God, and it's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you and gives you no rest till you return. It's the Holy Spirit of God that guarantees you belong to God. And so as we gather together in this place, when we gather corporately like this, when we gather corporately in, in smaller settings, in small groups, when we gather together and each one of us brings that Spirit of God that resides within us into that setting, there is power revealed. God can do things in settings like this that he can't do when just one person alone is engaged in something God has called them to do by, by the Spirit. When three or more gather, there's a greater power of the Spirit. When there's 10, when there's 100, when there's 1,000 gathered and the Spirit is within all of them, there is a power in the Spirit of God that can manifest itself in ways that it can't when there's only 10 together. It's a power magnified. It's a power multiplied. That's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to understand. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is, the, this is the, the way, this is the place, this is the moment, this is the purpose of the gathering, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's the power of the Spirit that's going to see this accomplished. Jesus wanted his disciples to see this from the very start. In verse 6, it says, so they, they met together and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel. The disciples were still longing for a, a restoration of national Israel. And Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, had obviously arrived on the scene. Nothing could defeat Jesus. The, the, the religious leaders and the Romans had tried to kill him unsuccessfully. He arose, they killed him, he rose from the dead. They couldn't even take his life. This was their Moses who stood, who stood up, who stood before the Pharaoh, who sent plague upon plague until the Pharaoh relented, who defeated the Pharaoh's army without even lifting a sword. The disciples knew that Jesus could do even more than Moses ever did. The disciples were looking for Jesus, I think, to declare Israel a a national entity to declare their independence from Rome. In fact, they, they may have been looking for Jesus to establish a, a Jewish empire in the belief that with Jesus as the head of that empire that they could surpass Egypt or, or Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. They could surpass all of the great empires with Jesus sitting upon the throne as the rightful king of that empire. And so they asked Jesus, is this the time when you're going to restore national Israel, restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first disciples believed Jesus, they obeyed Jesus, and, and they accepted Jesus' surrender of sovereign authority to the one true and living God. But I'm sure from the vantage point of, of those first disciples that declaring independence from Rome, and establishing Jerusalem as the capital city, drawing boundaries around the nation, announcing all of these things in a very public way that within Jesus in control and sitting on his throne that that people would flock to Israel. This miracle worker, Jesus, is one that had defeated death itself as the king of this empire and in, in, in inviting people to come. Who would not come and be a part of that empire? If you wanted to spread the gospel, seems like that would be a great way to spread the gospel. Just let Jesus establish an empire of his own and rule it. Who would rule more justly than Jesus? Who would rule with more mercy than Jesus? Who would, who would rule with greater abundance than all of the things that Jesus had to offer? But, but that was not God's plan. So often we, we ask the same question. The disciples had in their minds what they thought was a great idea. Why don't we just restore national Israel? We, we do the same thing. Lord, is it not the time that you would do? Fill in the blank. God, wouldn't this be a great time for, for you to go ahead and bring healing? God, wouldn't this be a, a good time for you to go ahead and grant me that promotion at work? God, wouldn't this be a good time for you to... This, what is it in your life that that you've thought in the past, this would be a great time for God to act in this specific way and alter my circumstance. 
It seems we always have a better way. It seems we always have a better idea, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of difficulty, when we find ourselves facing a, a hard thing. Jesus had already told them in Matthew 24 that a time was coming when the nations would see the Son of God, the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather all of the elect together from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. He told them in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Surely, some of those disciples must have thought to themselves, this would be a great time for Jesus just to go ahead and go right up into the sky and announce himself in the clouds and call the archangels to sound the trumpets and establish the nation now. But Jesus said, no. It's not your timing in which this will take place. It's mine. And they accepted the sovereignty of God. They accepted their assignment as witnesses, and they awaited the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And what you just see described here in this movement of the gospel message is, is from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the known world at that time, the known civilization to the very ends of the Roman Empire and even beyond as we observe what's happened in the aftermath of the book of Acts. The witnesses we see this morning as we look at these first are faithful servants, one who first and foremost, believed Jesus. They believed him in a way that moved them to be sold out completely to Jesus. No trip too far, no task too hard, no gift too great, no sacrifice too much to be asked because they believed their faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the only one with power of life. They were obedient to God. God had plan and purpose. They submitted themselves to it. They were obedient to love each other and, and those who had yet to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were obedient to the call to stick together from the body of Christ. There's strength when all of the parts are joined together. And there's encouragement for the difficult moments, many of which we, we don't understand them even when we're in the midst of them. Even when we're thinking, surely there's an easier way to do this. The body of Christ brings the strength and encouragement we need. Disciples are also surrendered to the sovereignty of God, confident that he knows best. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9 says, After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go up into heaven. It's hard to imagine this experience of seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. I've seen a couple of rocket launches. I've never actually been to the Cape and seen one on the other coast, but I've seen one or two from this coast. If it's clear... You can see the rockets launched. I remember one morning, still dark outside, it's 5.30. I was driving to see someone at a hospital before they went into surgery, driving down uh, Livingston Avenue. And I was listening to the radio. They were launching one of the shuttles. And so I pulled over to the side of the road. I was just curious. Clear day. I wonder if I could see it from here. And sure enough, in a few seconds, 
I saw the, the flame of the engine clear the trees, and I watched it go up all the way from one coast to the other. And I sat there watching it. And you look when you see something like that, and you watch it go up, and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, but you keep looking, you know, until you're looking and going, I wonder if that's still the engine I'm seeing, or is it out of sight? And you, and you watch until it is completely out of sight. And this is the impression I get of the, the apostles here. Jesus is ascended into heaven, and they're watching him. He's going, he's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and they're watching. Can we still see him? Is, that, is, he, is he gone yet? And, and then they hear these angels. Why, why are you standing there looking into the sky? He, the, the angels draw their attention back to the task at hand, the time for marveling at what has just happened is past. Jesus has provided every proof required of who he is. He will indeed return. Just as you've seen him go into the heavens, he will come back. He's told you how he's coming back. Now is the time to act upon what he has instructed you. And once again, in order for that to happen, in order for the gospel to be spread, we go back to this question. Do you believe the surrender to the sovereignty of God, the obedient witness to the good news of Jesus Christ, the surrender to the sovereignty of God in your own life, whatever that may look like, you are called to be his witnesses if you believe. And so the question that must be asked first before anything else is that question that Jesus asked of Martha, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And the one who lives believing in me will never die. It's the heart of the gospel. Do you believe? Please stand. If you don't believe, we want to give you the chance. Once again, belief is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no argument that I can present, no oratory that I can provide, no commentary that I can give that's going to convince someone to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that he is the one that has power over death, hell, and the grave and that the shed blood of Jesus Christ makes that life available to us. I, I, I can't do it, but the Spirit of God can. And I believe when the Word of God is shared, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. I believe when God's people are gathered together, bringing the Spirit of God together, that there's power in that. And so I believe God's Spirit is here today. His power is here today. His message is clear today. And you have the opportunity to respond to it today by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'd, I'd love to pray with you. We have counselors that will counsel with you. If you want to take up the conversation, we'll even do that with you. We'll answer whatever questions you've got, share with you what the Bible says about Jesus. And for the rest of you, you know, you, you, you say you believe, but do you really believe? And is it seen in the life that you live? You know, because if you really believe, if you really believe, then there's a, a, a sovereign surrender. There's a, there's, a, there's a willingness to go wherever, to spend whatever, to sacrifice whatever, because your belief, that, that belief 
That's the core element of who you are for a true disciple and that belief that he is life. And he's the only one that's life. And that's the overwhelming, overriding idea in your mind, the driving force in your heart if you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're struggling with any of those things, it's a great time to be on your knees before God saying, God, I want to get it right. I want to get it right. You respond to God this morning.